0: Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. Um, It is a privilege to be able to preach the word to you this morning. I want to remind you that this evening at 7 p.m., we will have our evening service on Zoom, so hopefully you'll get the invitation right around noon uh, for that today, and then we will see you on Zoom this evening. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, I'm just going to begin reading at verse 6. I'm going to read verses 6 through 13 turn with me to hebrews chapter 8 starting in verse 6 and we'll read verses 6 through 13 hebrews 8 verse 6 but as it is christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises in my covenant and so i showed no concern for them declares the lord for this is the covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days declares the lord i will put my law into their minds and write them laws sorry i will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and i will be their god and they shall be my people And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would receive this word as what it is, the word of the Lord, spoken to his church, superintended by the author of Hebrews for not only the church in the first century, but for the church in every age, for us, even today. Help us to understand your word. Help us to rejoice in in it. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Father, cause us to meditate well upon your Son, who is the sum and substance of every good promise. Cause us to look to him and know that it is through him, through Christ, in Christ, that we are are able to draw near to you. It is in Christ that we are your people, and you are our God. Help us to just revel in that, rejoice in that great hope. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin what I anticipate may actually be several weeks that we spend on this passage, as we think about the new covenant, Um, I'm still deciding how I'm going to break it up. It'll be this week and next week, or or actually multiple weeks potentially, um, as we look at the New Covenant together and walk through this passage together, I want to start um, with a basic question. Really, I want to ask you a question that might seem like a bit of a surprise, but but a question that we need to ask as we come to this passage. And here's the question. Let me ask you a question really about your Bible. What is this book all about? That's the question I want to ask. What are we being told here? Really, what is the um, sum and substance of what God is doing in this story? If I asked you that, what would you say? Why did God create you? Let's start there. Why did God create you? To what end? For what purpose did God create you? Let's start there. Look at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and look at the creation of man. You all know that God created all things, Genesis 1, 1, um, that he ordered them um, and laid them out, that creation out to us in six days, Um, really seven when we get to at the completion of the creation, but six days of creating. And when we look at verse 26 in the creation of man, the sixth day, we read this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And what's the first thing God does after he creates these image bearers? Image bearers are those who reflect Um, the, the one whose image they bear. They reflect God. So like a mirror reflects your image, so we as image bearers, as human beings, are reflecting who God is. And what does he do for us as image bearers? Immediately, verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So he created us as his image bearers, those who reflect his glory, and he blessed us and he commanded us to fill the earth with image bearers. In other words, to fill the earth with the glory of God. But if you stop with day six, you really miss the greatest blessing that God is giving us as his creatures. Look at Genesis chapter 2. Let's go to day 7, Genesis chapter 2, to get really at the the ultimate purpose of our creation. It isn't just that we would glorify God. um, That's true, but that we would enjoy him forever, that he would receive glory, and that we would enjoy him. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, it's the only day that he blesses here, and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his works that he had done In creation. So God created us and then brought us into this seventh day rest. He rested from His creation and He set that day apart for His worship. God created us for worship. God created us to dwell with Him. He created us for union and communion with Him. We were created to live eternally with the Lord as those who bear his image, who glorify him, to enjoy communion with God. In the garden, Adam was God's people. And God was his God. God dwelled with Adam in blessed union and communion. But as we all know, Adam disobeyed God. Adam broke God's covenant. And Adam was cursed. Adam was cursed. He was no longer under God's blessing. He was now under God's curse. Now the world and Adam's relation to the world is corrupted. Now man would die for the wages of sin is death. As God had promised, if you eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Now man would die. Man would be eternally separated from God. And in the midst of that wreckage, that curse that comes upon man for our sin, God made a promise. God made a promise. Look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. I will put enmity between you. That's the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring And her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, he would send the seed of the woman who would conquer the serpent. This is what we call the mother promise. If you will, all other biblical promises are birthed from this promise. So this seed of the woman would come. And what is the great hope that this seed of the woman would bring? Well, he would bring blessing rather than cursing. You might argue um, he would bring the end of Satan, sin, suffering, and death. Those terrible plagues, really, of the curse. He'll bring an end to them all. He will come and redeem us from all that. He will come and save us from the curse. And that's all true, but in some sense it doesn't go far enough. There is something more that his work will bring us, then the removal of the curse. His work will bring us the blessing of God. And what is that blessing? That we would dwell with God, that we would have union and communion with God, for God to be our God and for us to be his people, to be able to draw near to God in worship, to have the everlasting Sabbath with God, everlasting rest, life everlasting with God in his presence. And the Bible is laying out this story of redemption for you. This story by which God is redeeming a sinful and fallen people so that they might be able to dwell eternally with him. He will be their God and they will be his people. He will bring an end to Satan, sin, suffering, and death. And he will give his people the blessing of eternal union and communion with himself, we will be able to draw near to him and worship him and live in his glorious presence forever. And this mother promise in Genesis 3.15 is progressively revealed. This covenant of grace is progressively revealed to us through a series of biblical covenants, all pointing to the same great realities. These same promises. For the sake of time, I'm going to give you a short accounting of them. And actually, much of the sermon will be consumed with the short accounting of them so that we have context for what we read about the new covenant in Hebrews 8. Here's what I want you to grasp. God made a covenant of grace with Adam. He had made a covenant of works with Adam. Do this, and you will live. Do this, and you will die. Adam ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and so was cursed. Now he makes a covenant of grace with Adam, that he will redeem his people in the coming seed of the woman, so that they would be his people, and he would be their God once again, so that we might dwell with God and him with us forever. This covenant of grace that is made with Adam is given its form in the covenant with Abraham. Look at Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. When we come to Genesis chapter 12, understand that Genesis chapter 12, this is going to sound sort of obvious, but I'm going to say it. Genesis chapter 12 follows Genesis 1 through 11. The reason I point that out is Genesis 1 through 11 is talking about this cosmic fall. God has created all things, and all things have fallen, and we're seeing that worked out in Genesis 1 through 11, the curse on man coming through that story. And one wonders in the midst of that, who is this seed of the woman who's going to come and redeem all things? How do we find him? Where do we look for him? And in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to this man named Abram from Ur of the Chaldees. And God gives the form to the covenant of grace that he made with Adam. So notice what it says. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This is Genesis chapter 12 and verse one. Now this is what he says in verse two. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and in him who dishonors you, him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now we know that God cuts this covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 in this ceremony where Abraham takes the animals and splits them and the smoking firepot representing a theophany of God goes between them. And he does so as he does that, as he cuts the covenant, he does so in a manner in which God promises that on the penalty of his own divine life, the covenant will be kept Further, we know that God gives us the sign and seal of this covenant in Genesis 17 with circumcision. Now, for the sake of time, I I want you to see what the central promise of it is. I'm not going to camp out in Genesis 15 and the cutting of that covenant, nor am I going to camp out in Genesis 17 with the sign and seal of that covenant. I just want you to see the central promise of that covenant. Look at Genesis 17, and let's start reading in verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Remember, in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. You'll be the father of a multitude of nations. He's going to reverse that curse that is cosmic, if you will, where we see in Genesis 1 through 11 over all the earth. You'll be the multitude of a father of many or the father of a multitude of many nations, sorry. The father of a multitude of nations. Um, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. If you remember that, the command to Adam in the garden, God commands him be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now that command is actually given by God. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. See, God gave this promise to Abraham and to his offspring. And God promised that this Seed of the woman who would redeem us from the curse and bring us into fellowship with God would come through Abraham. He would be Abraham's offspring. And then God added an oath to this promise. He had already cut this covenant and promised it, but he adds an oath to this promise with regard to Abraham's offspring in Genesis 22. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. So this seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 is also the offspring of Abraham. He is coming to save us, to redeem us. He is coming so that we might dwell with God and be his people, and he would dwell with us and be our God. Abraham's family then begins to grow, as you know. He becomes, it eventually grows into the nation of Israel. So we know the seed of the woman is coming from the woman or from humankind. We know that that seed of the woman is coming from a nation, the nation of Israel. So it's narrowed a bit. And Abraham's family grows. And the the same promise is passed on to his son, Isaac. And then it's passed to Isaac's son, Jacob. From Jacob, who is renamed Israel, come the 12 tribes of Israel. And as we near the end of Genesis, we learn something else about the seed of the woman. Not just that he's coming from humankind, nor from Israel, but we learn, uh, or the offspring of Abraham and the offspring of the woman, if you will, but we learn something else. Look at Genesis chapter 49, Genesis chapter 49, and look at verse 1. We learn something about when this seed is coming, which I'll look at more um, in the next couple of weeks, but about when he's coming to see the woman, this seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham's coming. And we learn something more about him. Look at Genesis 49 and verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. And this phrase, in the days to come, is the latter days that we see throughout the, in the, old, the rest of the Old Testament and even picked up in the new. The latter days. So we know something is, he's blessing them, blessing Israel with something regarding the latter days. Now look down at verse eight, Judah, that's one of Jacob's sons, one of the tribes of Israel, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So, this seed of the woman, this offspring of Abraham, is coming in the latter days, and he is coming from the tribe of Judah, and he. Will be a king. Now, as we enter the Exodus, we hear the story of God's people, Israel, as they have now become a nation. And Israel, as you know, went to Egypt due to a famine. And while in Egypt, as they multiply greatly and become a nation, they are enslaved by Pharaoh. And the Lord sends Moses to deliver Israel from slavery. And when Moses was sent, he was to deliver a message to them. Look at Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6 and verse 6. Say therefore, Exodus 6 and verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Now look at verse 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Now the Lord intends to carry Israel to the promised land so they might dwell with him there. After Israel is redeemed from Egypt, God makes another covenant with Israel. He makes that covenant at Mount Sinai. And it's formalized in Exodus 19 through 24. That covenant we also call the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. It is a national, temporary, and typological covenant. In other words, it's, it's got a pointing forwardness to something greater. It's a national, temporary, and typological covenant that God makes with Israel to govern their life in the land until the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the latter day's king from the tribe of Judah, comes. In that Mosaic covenant, the people are given things. You probably remember the story. We won't look at them all now. But God gives the people the law. He gives them the tabernacle. He gives them the sacrificial system. He gives them the Levitical priesthood. The law is really foregrounded in the covenant. And it it shows them clearly what God requires of those who want to draw near to him. If you're not holy, you cannot draw near to God. And here is the standard of holiness in the law. It shows them what life looks like as those who live in the land under God's rule and blessing. God also gave him the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is where God dwells. But Israel can't enter the tabernacle. If you remember how Exodus ends, God fills the tabernacle with his holy presence, really the holy of holies, and even Moses can't enter because Israel's sinful. God is holy, and Israel is not. The priests God gives, he gives the Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood, And they are those who will then approach God and draw near to him on behalf of Israel. As we see that played out specifically and most prominently in the book of Leviticus. The sacrificial system is given to Israel. And it's given as the means whereby God's just wrath is satisfied for man's law-breaking. So that there is the possibility of drawing near to God God. And dwelling with him and the priests administered that sacrificial system in the tabernacle and their purpose was to help israel draw near to god to come into his presence to dwell with him now in all these sort of details don't miss the central goal the central goal in all of that is that man might dwell with god that god would dwell with us God graciously redeems Israel. God graciously gave her this covenant to govern her throughout her history. But Israel violated this covenant over and over again. Even when God gave them a king after his own heart, King David, Israel still failed to keep the covenant. God had promised David that a greater king would come from him. We call this the Davidic Covenants in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the coming, really the coming messianic king. He would send the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, in other words, Israel, from the tribe of Judah and from the house of David. So from mankind, the seed of the woman, to the nation of Israel under Abraham, to the tribe of Judah, that kingly line, to the house of David, David's greater son, the greater shepherd king, the one who would sit on David's throne forever, the one whom God says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. In other words, I will be his God and he will be my people. He would come and sit on David's throne eternally and rule righteously. But in Israel's history, we see their kings go from bad to worse. The people of Israel and their kings are wicked. They're idolaters. The priests also are often ungodly idolaters. Further, God gave Israel prophets to speak to them on his behalf. If the priest comes from man going to God, the prophet speaks from God to man. And he gave them prophets as they awaited an even greater prophet. Yet many false prophets arose who told lies to Israel and lies that Israel preferred over the truth. So Israel continues in sin, idolatry, and wickedness until God prophesied through his prophets that they would be carried off in exile. Now remember, the northern kingdom of Israel, the kingdom gets split, and the northern kingdom of Israel is carried off under Assyria in the 8th century, and the southern kingdom of Judah is carried off by Babylon in the um, 7th and 6th century. Yet in the midst of that exile, as they're carried off into exile, God promised a new covenant. This new covenant would be different than the Mosaic covenant. It would be better than the Mosaic covenant. Look with me at Jeremiah chapter 31 at one of those is at one of those prophets of Israel as he tells Israel as she's coming into her exile as he warns her uh, that she ought to repent and tells her of her coming exile and restoration. um, We get this new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31 Jeremiah chapter 31 and I'll begin reading in verse 31. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. You heard this, me read this in Hebrews 8 already. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Behold, the days are coming. The, those latter days when that messianic king will come that um, Jacob spoke about in Genesis 49, one. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He's going to bring back that split kingdom together and reunify it. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Not like the covenant I made with them when I redeemed them from Egypt. In other words, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that's made at Mount Sinai with Moses. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. See, the Lord took Israel as his bride. The Lord took Israel like a child by the hand out of Egypt and gave them a covenant. And Israel broke that covenant time and time again. And so now God is going to give them a new covenant, not like the covenant that they broke. Now look what he says. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. And he's coming latter days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. He had written on tablets of stone. Now he'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. You hear that? And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins there's sin no more. See, this new covenant, which we'll look at more in the coming weeks, this new covenant will deliver what the Mosaic covenant could not. This new covenant will not be broken. It won't be violable, as the Mosaic covenant was. This new covenant will have a new king who reigns in righteousness, who keeps the law perfectly. Look at Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 33 and drop down to verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. See, we're looking forward to these latter days. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Jacob. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever." Listen. This righteous branch will rise up, and in some way he will both be the king and he will replace the Levitical priests, bringing an offering or sacrifice before the Lord. This king will be the Lord Himself, walking among us, dwelling with us. That's what Isaiah tells us. Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He will be the righteous king, God with us. This new covenant will not only have a new king who reigns in righteousness, who is God with us, but this new covenant will have a new priest who brings an end to sacrifice and offering, if you will. Who offers the once for all sacrifice. He will be the priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, we learned in Psalm 110, verses 1 and 4, he is the Davidic king, verse 1 of Psalm 110, and he is the priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110, verse 4. This priest will be the Lord himself, cleansing the people of their sins. This priest king will offer a sacrifice that will put an end to sin. He will build a new tabernacle. Or a new temple. And God will dwell with his people in the new temple or the new tabernacle. In the new house of the Lord. He will be the priest king who brings an end to sin and cleanses the people. So that they might dwell with God in the new tabernacle that he builds. And God dwell with them. Listen to Zechariah chapter 6 verses 12 and 13. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Behold, the man whose name is the branch, remember Jeremiah 33, the branch, the Branch's his name is the branch for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council notice that there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. So the latter days, new covenant that's coming, is providing a new priest-king, one who can finally perfect the people of God. The new covenant is providing a priest-king who can rule in true righteousness and holiness, and thus bring the people near to God, one who can offer the true sacrifice and cleanse the people of their sins, bringing forgiveness of sins. One who can build the true tabernacle. One who can redeem us so that the promises given to Abraham are ours. Namely, that God is our God, and we are his people. That God dwells with us. And Christ, Jesus, is that priest, king. He is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is the king of righteousness and peace, who is also the priest forever. See, the priests under the Mosaic covenant could not perfect the people and bring us near to God. But Jesus can. Look at Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Let's go back to our primary text um, in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11. Now if perfection, completion, fulfillment, perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. In other words, under the Levitical priesthood, the old covenant was formally enacted. It was in place. Now, perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Now, look down at verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. Now, listen, the law is not weak and useless for its proper purpose, which is to point the people to Christ, the one who can fulfill it, both in its precept, keeping the commands, and its penalty, taking the curse of God upon himself in our place. The law is not weak and useless to that end, but the law is weak weak and useless to the end of making us perfect. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we, notice the language, through which we draw near to God. See, the former priest could not bring us near to God under the Mosaic Covenant. Only this priest, this new covenant priest, with this better hope, can bring us near to God. The former priests died, and thus they could not hold their priesthood permanently. But Jesus is the priest on the basis of an indestructible life. That's not just referring to his resurrection. That's referring to him as the Son of God incarnate, who is then resurrected. And by, listen, not only on the basis of an indestructible life, but by the word of the eternal oath from the Father. Look at Hebrews 15 through 17, sorry, Hebrews 7, 15 through 17, Hebrews 7, 15 through 17. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. See, the legal requirement in the Mosaic covenant or law was that one priest dies, he hands it down to his son, as, it, as you will. So not on the, on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, But by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now look down to verse 21. But this one, oh, sorry, verse 20. And this was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, Christ, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor, the security, the surety of a better covenant. Of a better covenant. Now look at Hebrews chapter 7 verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented from death by continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because... He continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, now notice the language again, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. See, the main point in all this is that we have such a high priest, one who after offering himself to make atonement for our sins, resurrected from the dead, ascended to the true Holy of Holies. That thing at the tabernacle, um, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, the Mosaic covenant was merely a type of, a picture of, a sketch of, if you will, a shadow of. He ascended to the true Holy of Holies, the true sanctuary where God and holiness dwells in heaven. And he brought the offering of himself before the Father as a priest who would go into the Holy of Holies and make propitiation. After he had slaughtered the Lamb, he would take that blood into the Holy of Holies and throw it on the mercy seat. So Christ gives himself, he makes an offering of himself, a pure, unblemished Lamb of God. He offers himself and then he ascends to heaven. And brings that offering into the Holy of Holies. And his work of atonement is complete. So he sits down. There. In the Holy of Holies. At the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Those old covenant priests. Stood daily at their service. They never sat down. Because their work was never done. Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. It can just point to and communicate the grace of the one who does Jesus Christ Christ completed the work of atonement and he went into heaven and presented it and sat down his work of atonement being done but he sat down to rule on the throne as the priest king to make intercession for us and to apply the benefits of that purchase that he made to us of the work that he did to us. Look at Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. Now the point in what we're saying, the main and what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He is there ministering on our behalf as the priest king on the throne who's completed the work of Atonement. He is there now applying that work to his people so that we can draw near to God through him. He is applying it every day, every moment, on and on, because, because he saves us to the uttermost. All those priests and sacrifices, and even the temple itself in the Old Testament, under the Old Mosaic Covenant, were all types and shadows pointing you to Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was the tabernacle or the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. See, Christ has now, though, obtained a much better ministry, a much better priestly service than those priests under Moses had. Christ has now obtained that. Look at Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. But as it is, or but now, Christ has obtained a ministry, a priestly service, that is as much more excellent, superior, better than the old, the old priests, the Levitical priests, As the covenant he mediates, the new covenant, is better since it is enacted on better promises. See, he has a much better ministry than the priests in the old covenant had. It is as much more excellent as the covenant he mediates is better. He is the mediator, the surety, the security of the new covenant. The covenant of consummation, if you will. That old covenant could never perfect the people. It was never intended to do so. Further, the people broke that old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Look at Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, or 7 through 9. So if that first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them, the people of Israel, when he says, God did not abandon them. Not fully and finally, he he saved his remnant. As he promises in Jeremiah 31.7, he's going to give a new covenant to the remnant. God promised them a new covenant. And Jesus is the priest king of that new covenant, who secures that new covenant. He cuts the new covenant in his own blood at the cross. And while we will look more, really more in depth at all the new covenant blessings that are delivered to us, all these better promises we're told about here next week and perhaps the weeks after, we'll see. And while we'll look at that later today, I want you to see the heart of it. I just want you to get at the heart of it. Look at chapter eight, verses 10 through 12, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into the, my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. You're the heart of it. Regeneration and revelation. We will know God. We will know him. His law will be written on our hearts and in our minds. Redemption. We will be forgiven of all of our sins, and he'll remember them no more. Union and communion. God will be our God, and we will be his people. See, these, these other benefits, if you will, these other promises that are better, bring us to that central promise, the sum and substance of it, really the sum and substance of the entire Bible story in Christ, in his person, and his work as our prophet, priest, And King, the God-man, the sacrifice for our sins, the one who ever rules and reigns at the right hand, in him and his work, God is our God, and we are his people. We draw near to God through Christ. Now, I want to make three applications of this this morning and really kind of wrap up with these three applications. Here's the first one. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Look to Jesus. Trust in him. The apostle Peter tells us that there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. You look to him. He is the promised Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. The righteous one, the priest king, the one who offers himself as a sacrifice for our sins, atoning for our sins on the cross, the one who conquers sin and Satan and suffering and death and raises from the dead, declared victorious, vindicated, the one who is holy and righteous and undefiled, blameless in everything. And he ascends to the right hand of the Father, where he presents the offering of himself. And he sits down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And he rules and reigns from there as our priest king, ever interceding for us, applying the benefits of his work to us. Look to him. He is the only one who can save you from your sins. So you have sinned. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone, without exception. Sin is a great democratizer. We have all fallen in Adam, in Adam's fall. Sin, we all, we are all guilty and corrupt in Adam. We have all rebelled against God's law. And the righteous wrath of God is justly upon us all. And his son has come and taken our place. Paid the penalty for our sins at the cross. The righteous exchanged for the unrighteous, if you will. He is the righteous one, but he took our unrighteousness upon himself and credited his righteousness to us. So look to him, trust him. He alone saves. He is the one who brings you to the Father so that God is your God and you're his people. That's the first thing, look to him. Second, application. We need to fix our eyes on heaven where Christ is. If the first application was look to Jesus if you're an unbeliever. The second application is if you're a believer, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. We need to fix our eyes on heaven where Christ is, knowing that he is our life. It's so easy to get our eyes fixed here on earth. We wonder if God is really for us, if he's really with us as we suffer in this fallen world. We get our eyes off of Christ and we get them on to our circumstances. We see our loved ones suffering. We see our nation reeling economically and, pa- and, and politically from a pandemic. We see our flesh defeating us in the battle with sin more often than we'd like to admit. We see families being ripped apart. We see disease spreading. We watch loved ones die, even watching our Christian friends sometimes take their own lives in an act of selfish desperation. And we rightly cry out, How long, O Lord? How long? That's a godly prayer. How long, O Lord? However, where we go off track in that godly prayer is when we begin to believe that if these horrific circumstances change in the manner that I want them to, then I will know God is for me. See, sovereign grace, that's setting our eyes on earthly things. God is for me. God is with me if he changes my circumstances from bad circumstances I don't want to good circumstances I do want. Our great hope, though, Sovereign Grace, is not that this present suffering will end. It will not end this side of Christ's return. Our great hope is that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Our great hope is that in Christ, God is our God, and we are his people, and we will dwell with him forever in glory. And that leads to my third application. The third application we need to trust that Christ will return and consummate all these promises fully and finally. And that is our blessed hope. That is our blessed hope. We are those waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are eagerly awaiting Christ's second coming. And what will this second coming bring? Let me end with this. Look with me at Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1. We'll read this and end here today. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. To which we say, come, Lord Jesus, come soon. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we ask you to apply this word to our own hearts and minds so that we as your people would look to Christ, that we would see that in Christ you are God and we are your people in his person and work that is all fulfilled. May we see that that is the sum and substance of this great redemptive story being played out across the pages of the Bible. May we look to him. For those who do not believe who might be watching this, Father, we pray they would turn to Christ and be saved. They would look to him. For those of us who do know your son, we pray. We ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on Christ who is in heaven, who is above, who is our life, that we would long for him and look to him, that we would know that all of our blessings and benefits are caught up in him, that we would trust him. Father, as we suffer in a variety of ways and as our circumstances are not the way that we want them to be, may we look to him and remember that the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared to the glory That's to be revealed to us. May we long for our Savior, our great God, our Lord Jesus Christ, looking forward to his second coming when he will make all things new, when we will hear declared in the new heavens and the new earth, across the boundaries of that great new creation, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, He is with them as their God, and they are his people. May we look forward to that day when he will wipe away every tear, bring an end to all suffering and sin and death, and we will be ushered into glory forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.